I shared that, that you know I've met quite a few Aussie Australian Anglo women who had gone to FGM, and one was you know masturbating when her mother took her scissors to cut off her clitoris. That was her response, and that the other women Anglo women I've met, they were taken when they were little to a clinic, and the doctor was told to cut off their clitoris because they were gay. And that was not acceptable. So we need to be inclusive and not be racial in the way we view FGM. Because at the end of the day, what it does is isolate those who have had those experiences but may not fit the stereotype. And that's all it is. It's a stereotype. It can be the blonde, blue-eyed woman. It can be that woman who was little, who was told that somehow she was too boisterous and her clitoris was cut so she'll be more calm. The patriarchy is real, ladies. And it comes in all forms and shapes. I'm your host, Natalie Dronovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. Like so many of my guests, today's conversation is with the powerhouse that is Khadija Blah. She is an award-winning human rights activist, fiercely campaigning to see an end to female genital mutilation, a horrible tradition that she herself went through as a young girl. She's also the recent winner of the InStyle Advocate for Acceptance Human Rights Award, for her work in activism, diversity, and inclusion. Khadija is a force to be reckoned with, always focused on empowering women to save themselves rather than be saved. And despite the seriousness of female genital mutilation, she has such a great wit and sense of humor about her that is just so captivating and warming. In today's episode, we not only discuss the ramifications of female genital mutilation, but the larger issues of how women's bodies are governed and our apparent lack of ownership and decision-making process when it comes to them. And just one final thought. If a woman's independence and freedom and sexual autonomy frightens you to the point where you don't like it or approve or you feel it's bad, it is you that needs to reevaluate. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Khadija, thank you so much for joining me. No worries. Thank you for having me. Let's kick off with Rapid Fire. You're jumping on a plane tomorrow. You can go absolutely anywhere. Where would you go? Brazil. What's your favorite food? Sierra Leonean food, my cultural food. What's the one book that's had the greatest impact on you? Nelson Mandela's autobiography. What's your favorite childhood memory? Movie. I was a refugee. I didn't watch movies, really. Story time with all the aunties and uncles because we had no electricity will be the equivalent of a movie. I love that. Um, <laughs> and lastly, who is a female role model for you and why? My mom, in some ways. Um, yeah, my mom. My mom, she's a strong, empowered, black woman who takes no shit. And I just like, I love her resilience. She is so resilient. Yeah. I love that. Okay, yeah. so one of the main reasons to just to begin that I call this show The Modern Women is because... I'm always curious to understand for most women how you find being a modern woman of today. And so for you, when I ask that, what does it mean for you to be a thriving woman? Thriving woman. I'm a single mom, an African-Australian woman, a former refugee. Oh, the identities, they just have a way of coming out. A modern, for me, being a modern woman is all about owning my identity and not letting the world determine that identity. I am the one saying who I am and who the fuck I am going to be 
and how I'm going to express said um, identity to the world. That's what it means to me. I love it. I'm allowed to have swear words. You can okay, swear. Because I do like a good swear word in there. <laughs> so I first started following along with your work when you recently won the InStyle Advocate for Acceptance Award. Now, I'm a big believer that women in general don't yet have a big enough platform. But to also quote you, women who look like me and sound like me don't always get a platform to tell their stories. I am a proud black African woman. It's on us to fight for each other. To say your fight may not look like mine, but we're in this together. And now you grew up in war-torn Sierra Leone. You've faced more hardships and extremes than I would say most of us will in our entire lives or can even imagine by the time you were three. And so I'd love if we could begin there and for how we, I guess, came to be within each other's spaces with sharing your FGM story, which for those who don't understand is female genital mutilation. Yeah. My journey to Australia is quite interesting. When I was standing on that stage at the InStyle magazine, I did have this sense of my people are not usually in this room. In fact, when I walked, got down, you know, from the limousine, When I walked out of the limousine with my sister who lives in Sydney and I invited her along and we entered and it's that you look around, we were the only brown girls in that room. That is my reality in a lot of ways. And then when I was standing on that stage holding that award, it was still that clear sense of, yes, I have arrived, I guess, in some ways, but what a privilege for someone who looked and sound like me and who has my cultural background to be in that room with those women and be speaking my truth but not having it spoken for me. Because that's the reality. Women who look like me, everyone talks about us. They talk to us. They never talk with us. So coming all the way from Sierra Leone, being a refugee at the age of three, by no choice of mine, because I think in Australia when we talk about refugees, we, we, we forget. It's not a choice. I didn't choose to be a refugee. It's something that happened to me. And by virtue of that, having to flee my home, leave everything I knew behind um, to this day. I don't even have a birth certificate. Everyone has to take my word that I'm 31. Black doesn't crack, but it's fine. I am 31. My mom (laughs) says I am. Um, (laughs) We just believe her. But having to leave everything I knew behind, culture, family, and then relocate to Gambia and be living in limbo for years, not knowing if we'll be resettled somewhere in the world and not knowing if I will see my 15th birthday, if I will live long enough to achieve all these goals and aspirations I now have and to be somebody who's at 31 standing on that stage. Can I jump in for a second? Yes. (laughs) Because even the fact that you say um, that I would be so young and have all of these goals, dreams and ambitions, do you sometimes think that gets lost on people, that people who are within those circumstances, that you do grow up and you do actually have these big, aspirations these dreams where I feel like most of us in society or at least you have this thing of like let's just save them yes whereas you want to save yourself I wanted to save myself even at that young age even I was stuck in limbo and there were no guarantee I would eat the next day my mom will be there most of my family members were already killed whether my mom will still be alive to look after me whether I would see my 15th birthday like I've said I still had dreams of one day being in a place to call home and being safe and having an education, I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to do the saving. I wasn't waiting for somebody to come and save me. But my mom was always a believer that you needed to get your girls to rely on their intelligence, not their beauty, because that is what will save them. And it's funny that when my mom was young, she got an education because my grandfather who was a chief. At a time when you didn't send daughters to school, you sent your boys to school, sent all his daughters to school because he said to his daughters, Your education, your brain is what will save you. When war broke out and my family had to flee and we ended up in a refugee camp, my mom, because she had an education, meant we could go to school. It meant we went sold off in sexual slavery. It meant she didn't have to marry us off to some bold, fat guy and be a fifth wife. It gave us options. She, we weren't waiting for anyone to save us. My mom wasn't waiting for a man to save her and her daughters. She wanted us to always save ourselves. And by virtue of my grandfather being a feminist at the time when the probably word wasn't even thrown around, he gave us a legacy that came off the bat of not waiting for somebody to save us. And by God, we were going to determine our identity. Yes, that is always missing the conversations around people like us. People just assume we're waiting for somebody to rescue us. We weren't. I still had dreams and hope. And while in some ways before I came to Australia, those hopes and dreams would get squashed a little bit through my mom's decision to have female genital mutilation carried out on me. 
and I can understand where my mom is coming from in that being a woman in that cultural context, she felt that by performing that act that had been performed on her too, with no consent on her part, her own mother forced her to undergo female genital mutilation, believing that it was a form of empowerment, believing that in that context, if she didn't do it, she wouldn't be a good mom. And living in a patriarchal society, she had to step in line. My mom would then go on to make the exact same decisions for her daughters. And as a what nine-year-old daughter girl being held down and having your mom hold you down while she pays somebody to mutilate you in the name of culture, in the name of you will now be a clean woman, in the name of you are now going to be empowered because you will be in control of said sexuality. At nine, who has a bloody sexuality? I'm sorry, like I wasn't even thinking about myself that way. But in the name of the patriarchy that has told her that as a woman, we needed to be controlled. Our sexuality was a threat and that we needed clean and pure women. So there was at nine going through one of the most brutal forms of gender-based violence and having no understanding why at nine, a young girl with my whole life ahead of me, not sure of that life, but still hoping that one day I will be safe and secure, why would I be considered a threat? Because I was a girl. Because that was it. I was considered a threat. And my, that threat needed to be contained. And... Well, years later, we will arrive in Adelaide on the 9th of June on Sunday, uh, my 18-year anniversary in Australia, to a different world, a world where now I was a 13-year-old teenager stuck between two different cultures, African at home, trying to be Aussie out and about, fitting nowhere, trying to work out who I am and tell the world who the fuck I want them to think I am. Wow. It's so, because I want to use, I, I mean, when I actually first heard you uh, speak about FGM and what happened to you, and you obviously describe it, and I have a visceral reaction in my body, and I feel like you've saved everyone from not actually describing exactly what it's happened. It's not always necessary, I find. No, definitely not, but I would, because I want to use it as a, a jumping off point for the governing of our bodies yeah. um, later throughout this conversation, I would love if you could share a little bit around if there are different types or yes. why in which there is this belief that women are then pure if you have that happen to you. Because yes. I'm, I'm actually, I find it so difficult to piece the string together between, hi, have FGM, now you're clean and pure, as, to, as opposed to before then you weren't. Yes, I can definitely explain that. So female genital mutilation, for those who might not be familiar, is any altering or... Um, cutting of the female genitalia, according to the WHO. And there are three types of FGM. Type 1 is when the hood is cut or nicked. Type 2 is when the clitoris are partial, or parts of the clitoris and maybe one set of the outer lips are cut off. Type 3 is when maybe everything down there, the female genital is cut off and you are sewn up so you have only a little hole to barely pee and have your period. Or nothing is cut at all and you're just sewn so on your wedding night your husband will have the honor of opening up to prove that you are pure and a virgin. So why is FGM performed? Hearing that those three types and how brutal they are, absolutely unnecessary. Why is it done? It's done because of the belief that the clitoris is dirty. So that's why you become clean once it's cut off. It's dirty, it's smelly, and it controls you. But I really think what the argument behind that is that the clitoris is a direct competition to the bloody penis. And we can't live in a world where anything challenges the penis because we do live in a penis centric world who yeah yes so that's really what the, what why fgm is done it's this we don't we can't have anything contradicting or challenging the penis and the power of the penis and the clitoris being that it's this organ that was purely put there for the pleasure of women well that robs people the wrong way i should say it robs the robs the patriarchy the wrong way the second reason why fgm is performed is this belief that you know Women can't control themselves, that the clitoris will take over and they will be out of control. They will just, they will just, you know, have sex with anything that moves and squeals and we just need to help them have more control. 
what does that sound like? Yeah. Given that we live in a world where we say women need to cover up because men are so not in control of their bodies. And, you know, we, I, I read an article recently where a mom made a whole plea why girls should not wear tights because God forbid her son saw a woman in tights. It would just be too much. This, it's a contradiction. Apparently, we are not in control, but we live in a world that's constantly telling us we are so sexual and so, so um, such Jezebels they just went tight with sending a man into rape. Yeah. Well, isn't it so funny that women's bodies have to be desexualized instead of men's minds? Exactly. But on that note, because this is not a topic which is spoken about in general society, and I know when we first started talking, you said, um, you know, everyone thinks this is an African issue. Yes. And I don't know, but have you seen The Handmaid's Tale? I just binge watched it all, all over again so I could catch up to the new season. Yeah. So there's a scene where a girl has FGM happen to her. Yes. And it is showed in a way of punishment for a woman's bad behavior. Yes. And the quote that is given by the villainous character who is doing it says, you can still have children, of course, but things will be so much easier for you now. You cannot want what you cannot have. And so that obviously rings so true for you and what you've seen happen to other people. I would never forget when that episode came out and it became very clear to all of us because it wasn't clear. I have to remember when I watched that episode, it wasn't clear what had taken place, to be honest with you. It wasn't actually clear. It took, I think, reading an article after that explained that actually it was FGM and it was done intentionally put into the episode. And of course, I had a ball with this in terms of my social media and really going wonderful. Something I can use to attract a Western audience who have this belief and ideology. FGM is not part of their history or culture. Well, I said to you, I go, when I first heard of it and we started talking about it, I go, I did have it in my mind yep. that it was with certain cultures and in certain places and in yes. certain countries. That's not true, but it also tells you the way Western feminism and the Western Anglo world does have a way of ordering other women's experiences and saying we are more superior we're better we we don't do that you are different you need saving you are victim not us we have rescued ourselves and now we're empowered but you we have to come down to your level and help you and then you say to them you do know in the 1980s they were doing clitronomy on white women like what do you mean no we did not you do know labiaplasty is part of the fgm definition oh no i'm not a brown woman in africa so no, it does, it's not the same. It's not FGM. I go, see the racial bias in which you're looking at these issues? This is about patriarchy. And across the world, no matter whether a woman is a woman with a hijab in the Middle East or a woman in Africa in a village or an Australian woman trying to walk down the road and being told and being whistled at by construction guys, the battle's actually the same. The way it manifests is what is different. But it does us no good when we're so be busy believing that we are far more superior and more worldly than others. And in that, we actually reject their humanity. So when I say to women, labiaplasty and this, all these body constructions that we do to change ourselves, why don't we take time to question why we do that? And what is the, um, the goal and the agenda? But what is society telling us about the bodies of women and how then we internalize that? So in Australia, research now proves that there is such a huge booming industry of labiaplasty for girls under the age of 18. Why would that be? Why would girls under the age of 18 whose bodies are still developing feel pressured or the need to alter their vaginas so they could have what we now call what perfect vaginas? Is do, it, you, do you think it's because it's porn industry? That does have a huge part to play in it. Yeah. Watching porn, we see bodies that are manufactured, everything is tucked in and looks, I guess, neat, if you want to say. Biologically, in a lot of ways, women's bodies come in all shapes and sizes, and we have dripping labias and dripping menorahs happening everywhere, colors, shape, textures, and that's actually normal. But you ask the average Australian woman, what is a normal uh, vulva? They won't actually be able to tell you. Yeah, well, I mean... Not to say because of my experience being a lesbian, but <laughs> you, you very much see there are a lot of different vaginas. Yes. And it wasn't until I didn't, I didn't know that this wasn't a common knowledge factor until I had a friend who was, you know, exploring her first female experience. And it wasn't until she saw her girlfriend's vagina that she was like, oh, it doesn't look like mine. And I was like, why would you have expected it to ever have looked like yours? Yep. But I guess that the porn, like, because I don't think there's a problem. For those who watch porn, that's not about porn's not the no. problem in this um, circumstance or conversation. It's more about 
how it's portrayed, women with these large breasts, perfect vaginas, and then we wonder why we feel these huge expectations. Yes, and and for young people especially, there's just so much pressure to have the perfect body, you know, to look a certain way, to be normal, to be sexy, to be the girl who gets the most likes online. But what was interesting is that last year, there was an article I read online, and it was this Anglo woman, had she took her 13-year-old daughter to get labiaplasty because she thought one of her daughter's lips was just hanging a bit too low. I want to know why, A, that mother had so much attention on her daughter's vulva. I'm sorry, but I just don't understand in what situation she was observing it that close to even pick up on that. Just one (laughs) centimeter too far, darling. Too far. But B, nothing was wrong with her daughter. Because in a world where, if, for example, girls can have, you know, over-large, you know, labias, and that can cause chaffing and pain and be a form of discomfort, and that's perfectly fine to get that fixed. But this was a healthy 13-year-old girl who had a normal body. But her mother deemed it necessary to take her to have unnecessary surgery so she would look aesthetically pleasing. How is that any different from the woman in the village in Africa who believes that her daughter, what is between her legs, needs to be neatly done so she'll be marriageable one day? Well, have, uh, so I was telling you how I've recently been reading Melinda Gates' new book. Yeah. And I came across this quote. A woman's pleasure, especially her sexual pleasure, was terrifying to the keepers of the social order. If women were free to pursue their own pleasure, it would strike at the core of the unspoken male code. Yes. You exist for my pleasure. And it made me also wonder, has it also happened in such a way where, because as long as there's a hole, not, God, I'm going to use this term. As long as there's a hole, there's a goal where a clitoris for a man doesn't do anything extra. It doesn't. So therefore, if I get rid of mine, I won't have any pleasure, but the other aspects and parts of me that can still um, give you attention are all working fine. Exactly. It's that double standard. And it's actually really quite sad that we have now been uh, reduced to body parts and bits that need to be eliminated and which parts is a threat and how then as a society we continuously control and we, we continuously surveillance women's bodies. I mean, you just have to see adverts on TV. By God, every second advert is telling you you're not good enough. You need to change that bit so you can look this way, so you can fit this definition of beauty but who does that benefit? Yeah, well, we are definitely going to dive into the genderization <laughs> and governing of women's bodies. But one thing I do want to ask you, because I think a lot of people, I know when I ever heard of circumcision, I always heard of male circumcision. Yes. So before I share my personal opinion on that, do you think that there is a difference? There is a huge difference. Female genital mutilation, and the key word there is mutilation, is in no way and shape or form the same as male circumcision. Male circumcision does not have the same intent as female genital mutilation. So that's the first start. Why is male circumcision done? It's done so boys are considered clean. I think you could teach a boy to clean his damn hole. Well, I mean, the origins date back to when we couldn't shower every day. Exactly. You should now, you should, uh, that's why circumcision was created. Whereas now we do shower every day, yes. most of the time, I would say. We do. And it's only really done for religious and cultural decision making. Exactly. What I get from a lot of women or men is I want my son to look like me. I want his penis to look like my penis. What huge goals in life to just want your son's penis to look like yours, as if you're going to be glued to him for the rest of his life. So that's really such an important bonding experience. It's ridiculous. But female genital mutilation is done to control the sexuality of women. It's done because women's sexuality is seen as such a threat that newborn baby girls are being mutilated so they wouldn't be a threat to the world. Let me repeat that. Newborn baby girls. Have you seen a a, a newborn baby girl? They're just cute. They cry. They drink breast milk. But they're considered a threat. That's how much the attack on gender and the female... Oh, you... you, (laughs) I get upset because it just feels like there's such terrorism against women because when you then think of a newborn baby... I just had a son, so I, I know newborn babies, they're just so helpless and... And deserving of protection. So the idea that somebody would think a precious little baby girl needs her, her, her clitoris cut off, lest she will grow up to be an empowered woman in control of her body and sexuality, it, 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 it just totally baffles me. The consequences of FGM are not the same as male circumcision. If you're lucky not to bleed to death, so FGM can easily be murder. You have incontinent. We're talking about six-year-old, four-year-old baby girls with incontinent. We're talking Could you clarify? Because a lot of people, I feel like I can hear them say, what's that mean? 
Incontinent, it's just when you're constant, just peeing your bladder, you're not in control of your bladder. So they literally just peeing everywhere. Can you imagine that in a little village, you being the girl who stinks of pee everywhere you go? People not wanting to sit with you, talk to you. You're now dirty. So we're going to cut you so you're clean. clean. Now mm-hmm. we leave you even more unclean through no fault of your own. And now you'll be shown. We can't actually win regardless of how you look at it. Then you have the possibility of infertility. Oh, yes. Let's be in a cultural context where we, we have defined women by their childbearing. But now we're going to cut you, and then you can have a child, then we punish you once again. Because now you're a witch who can have a child. You couldn't just cut it enough. And if you, oh, and then, you know, comes the in STIs and the inf- infections and the PTSD as a result. As you have probably noticed, I have not mentioned a single benefit of female genital mutilation. And not to say male circumcision has benefits depending on your, each person's personal views, they're not actually the same. The two are completely world apart, but I would like to be clear to people that I personally don't believe in male circumcision. I have a son, and I did not circumcise him because I don't believe in cutting healthy gen- body parts. So, I don't. So I didn't realize, I guess I, I really had a very basic understanding of this, and it wasn't until I met wa- my wife and she's Jewish, and so it's generally correlated between if you're Jewish and you have a boy, he's circumcised. And um, she was so adamantly against it. And I used to be like, but why? But why? And then when, and we were, as we were talking about this, and then as, of course, we were having this conversation with FGM, she's like, well, it's a non-therapeutic treatment. It's a non-medical, non-therapeutic, I can't yeah. remember which one she tells me now. It's a non-therapeutic treatment happening without the consent of the patient. Yes. And it just made me think totally different. And so she's always like, well, would you ever go cut off a little girl's clitoris? And I was like, well, no. And she's like, well, so what's the difference? Why would you want to do it? And it just made me actually stop and go, wait, just because a culture or something or a tradition is saying this is normal, why do I all of a sudden just adopt it? Like it's like it's something within my mind. And so before we even move on to the rest of the governing of women's bodies, I would like you to make clear for other people because I think, and a lot of people will listen to this and say to themselves, she keeps on relating this back to being in a village, being in Africa. I'm living for those, let's say, living in Australia or America. It doesn't happen here. It does. Yes, so could you... So for the modern Australian woman or, you know, woman in the Western world who's like, well, you know, we all went to school, we read the books, we all read Worry's diary book on, you know, experiencing FGM all the way in the desert of Africa. Yeah, those poor African women. Yeah, we feel for them. Well, I'm really sad to tell you that in Australia, in the US, in the Anglo world, there are white women whose vulvas look exactly like mine who were mutilated and cut as little girls. There are women in America who, especially white Anglo women, who are raising their voice and sharing their truth that when they were little, their clitoris were cut so that they would not masturbate. Their clitoris were cut to to take away lesbianism. Their clitoris were cut to put them under control because they were too boisterous. So if you thought FGM is only relevant to the Muslim woman, the African woman who needs saving, I got news for you. This is something that's happening in our backyard in the Western world under the various names. Labiaplasty will be the most common name this is falling under. And to be clear for women, if you're over the age of 18, it's not my job to want to control or tell any woman what choices she makes in consent to, about her body. That's yours. What my fight is, for girls under the age of 18, children who have been forced or who have been coerced or actually with no choice of their own have been put through any form of FGM, whether it's labiaplasty, type 1, FGM to type 3, that is unacceptable. As a feminist, though, I believe and respect every woman's right as an adult to choose what she wants to do with her body. That, to me, is of, it's not my fight. But I think even in that conversation, we can question coercion. We can question when a partner says to you, oh, your boobs are just a bit too droopy. Maybe you need breast, uh, you know, breast implant. Oh, you're just a bit chubby. Maybe you need to lose weight. Or, I don't know, your vagina just looks different from my exes. I think maybe you... Well, especially <laughs> also after pregnancy. Especially after pregnancy. I don't know if you've heard of the, um, the mother-husband stitch. Oh, my God. So I have a friend who had that happen to her. One thing, so the same friend, she shares with us, she goes, my vagina was, in her words, ruined after pregnancy. And then she also talks about how she got the husband stitch. 
So the husband stitch can be done through a woman choosing it or a doctor, doctor. forcing it on you without your consent and not knowing because the patriarchy is real. You just had that baby. They just destroyed your vagina. It is ruined. It is not, it is like a sad situation out there. And while you're lying there still with your hormones all over the place going, what just fucking happening? A man is making a decision that you need to be stitched up a bit tighter so your husband would not, I guess have to go without so he would just have the same feeling and sensation so he will not be lacking do we see the misogyny in that at all that in that moment of you pulling out this sizable head of ball out of your very small hole a doctor is thinking of a man and the man's need and wants and what will make him happy that is one form of the husband's teaching. Other form is women requesting it. And once again, to say women can make decisions for themselves. But we can question how much of the misogyny we have internalized that makes us think we do need to have a husband's teach so our husbands will be happy, perhaps. If you're doing it for you, good on you, sister. You go on and tighten that shit up so you can bounce back and you can get your groove on and you can do whatever you want to do. I'm all for that, sister. Amen. But... We should question, are you doing it so your husband is happy? Are you doing it in this sense of I need to bounce back to the woman I was before because society says when you have a baby, you need to erase the whole experience so that you can revert back to as if you never had said child. Why? I think those are things we can actually still constructively question while still respecting women's autonomy and rights to their body, but also acknowledging we do get a lot of pressure and we can internalize said pressures and make decisions based on wanting to fulfill society's standards. Yeah, completely. And I think it's a, it's that idea that you hear it enough and so you think you've made that decision and then you realize actually it's just been everyone else's expectations on me around this decision. So let's talk about the governing of women's bodies in general and the pervasiveness across different histories, cultures and societies. Because my overarching question is why? How is it that it is this issue that transcends borders, time and religion? And when I say this issue, I mean very broadly the idea of what women wear and what they do with their bodies and how that is governed or regulated by a male-dominated society of rules and expectations. Mm -hmm. Look, I am just sad that we live in a world where you wear your short skirt and you stand in the mirror and you look really bloody good. Your ass looks good in it. Your waist is looking snatched. You're feeling yourself. You're like, yes, damn, I look good. And then you go, oh, shoot, what are people going to think? When I walk down the road, how is this? What treatment will I get because of what I'm wearing? Mm. If I was in an office, would this, me would this mean people will think I'm asking to for it? Will people assume this means I'm a bimbo? And God forbid I'm going about my day minding my business and somebody decides to assault me. Will this then be what I'm wearing? Will that be the cause of my rape rather than the action of said person choosing to behave that way? Our dressing is political. Our dressing and what we wear has become politicalized. It has become a form of control. And, you know, my favorite meme online at the moment is the one where, you know, you have the woman in the burqa, you have the woman in the short skirt, you have the nun and all of these different images of dressing. And they all say, I was raped. But hold on, I thought it's when you were the short skirt. But the woman in the burqa got raped too. Oh, well, that is now confusing. Mm. I thought it was our fault. I as thought it was what we were wearing that attracted rape. As if rape is only legitimate if you're wearing a tracksuit. Exactly. But what if you're in your home and somebody breaks in and, and, and rapes you? Or your husband rapes you? But then we say to the woman, why were you out at night? You should be in your house. But one woman a week is killed due to domestic violence in Australia, in their homes, by partners who love them. I'm mm. sorry. We are asking the wrong questions, and we constantly put the blame and responsibility on women. on women. Rather than putting the blame and the responsibility where it belongs, why was there a creepy guy down the road in Melbourne waiting for Eurydice to come out, you know, while she was walking from her comedy show, feeling, I'm sure she felt so good. She had kick ass. Her jokes were funny. She's feeling nice. She wants to go home and celebrate. And there was that creep. Or that the one woman a week who is killed, who lives in her home, scared for her life, that the man she lives with, she has to walk around eggshell lest he gets angry and feels entitled that he needs to beat her up. Mm. I'm sorry. 
I think women are doing everything to keep safe, but we're not the ones creating the own safety in the first place. Why do you think it is that men desire? And I guess a lot of people say it's not all men and I totally, that's fine. But my question is overall, why do you think men have this innate desire to control women or set upon rules by which we must abide by? Because I was sharing with you before the mics were on earlier about how if you were to use the example of a preppy boy he's gone out he's wearing a pretty pink polo shirt you know perhaps a nice watch but he goes to an area and you can see that he's affluent and they he gets assaulted and all the rest of it you'll never read a news article that says it must have been what he was wearing it will just go into the detail of what occurred and and what an atrocity whereas if it was a woman and she had a short skirt or perhaps she was kissing a man then said no or anything and all of a sudden it's her fault she was out too late she was wearing something slutty she was already kissing him so that somewhat was innately permission So why is the dialogue not flipped around? I think the patriarchy was always set up to put the responsibility and blame on women. I do think the reason why men feel such entitlement to control, abuse, manipulate, mutilate, and um, abuse women stems from that they are scared of us, to be honest with you. Because men have spent so much time and effort in honing their skill set in that women need to be controlled and put in a box. I can't think of any other thing that would drive that beyond f- fear. But what do you think is so, like, I mean, because I, like, I genuinely look at women, I think they are beautiful and powerful yes. and all of these things. And then I think, why would you not? Like, if you statistically look ahead, and I would say, let's say most people in general want to have children, you have a 50% chance of having a daughter. Yes. Why would you not want to future pace and have life be better for her? Because even though men love their little princesses and they call them princesses, my little darling, my honey pot and all these lovely, lovely things, they still will go on to make decisions that will hurt that little honey pot and princess. Think of the men in the U.S. who are making the abortion bans. They have daughters. Yeah. They have daughters, but they need for control. They need to be superior. They need for power. Nothing can stand in the way of that, not even the little honeypot at home who will one day be punished by daddy's decision that women need to be controlled. So with the example I was sharing with you earlier, I want everyone to imagine a world where once boys hit puberty, their reproductive ability is regulated by a vasectomy. And at the point that they decide they'd like a kid, they may, with the approval of a medical authority, reverse it. Now, doesn't that sound crazy for everyone who's listening? But why, in a similar sense, isn't that what women are forced to do? We need the approval of a medical authority to get a prescription for a pill, to reduce the chances of getting pregnant, let alone mention the side effects. Then we have the responsibility to take the pill daily at the same time, embrace the hormonal impacts with a smile, and it's a complete regulation and control over our bodies. Yet we, society, the powers may be, so freely demand and put pressure on women to be on it. And men walk around complaining that condoms don't feel good and why are women so moody? Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. why is it that, especially when it comes to abortion and not that it's a hot topic, I think it's always a pressing topic yes. because even in Australia, um, you, you actually have to prove that there is psychological harm mm-hmm. if you want an abortion. And there are states where it's still not legal. We yeah. forget that we look to America in our own backyard. There's still states where it's not legal yeah. to have an abortion. Yeah. And I just question this irony around if a man can get a vasectomy and it gives you no side effects, yet I have friends who have the worst side effects from taking the pill every day, same time, oh no, missed it. But yet we think that's okay. Like, are we not kind of stopping and thinking, wow, how did we get, like, I know we've come further than before, but how do we still get here where we're looking for permission from others? And I think sometimes that's sad about the, the, uh, feminist movement or this ideology that we have really come so far we should just be so grateful not realizing that yes we have come very far in that we can vote and we have all these sort of rights but we have new battles now and some old ones just repackaged in a different way and we can't get complacent in where we can vote where we can have jobs we're still not paid equally to men i'm sorry there's still places where you know the hands male tail is real and alive mm. it is not a movie it is not something you watch and go oh my god it's so terrible god forbid we're ever there we are there our daughters will inherit that and it's quite sad that you know in a lot of ways the complacency sometimes scares me among women ourselves but more than that 
that we are, I don't feel like we're actually doing enough to actually fight the patriarchy. We're so busy scrambling amongst ourselves, pitching each other amongst ourselves, and fighting and and ordering the other woman. If your if your you know if your fight doesn't look like mine, then you know I'm sorry I can't help you. And if you're different, then you know sorry your fight is not mine. And we all of this politics just distracts us from the actual main fight, which is that we do need to get back onto the fight of how do we fight for our equality? How do we fight for our empowerment? I work in sexual health, and a couple of years, I think a year ago, I read an article that said that they were doing some trials on the pill for men. And those men started suffering this side effect that millions of women go through, like you said before, with, with contraception, the headaches, the fatigue, and all of that stuff. Well, they stopped the trial because these fragile men, it was just too hard for them to handle said side effects. Yet, thousands and millions of women every single day, due to the fact that the burden of contraception sits on us, have to choose, have to go through all those symptoms every month, whether you get your boobs are sore, God forbid you break out in terrible pimples. We've all been there. But it's your responsibility. But he's fine. He's okay. They couldn't crack the trial. They couldn't even crack a trial. Meanwhile, most women are out here every month suffering, having babies and all of that. It just seems like the contradiction and the double standards are real. And sometimes you almost have to laugh so you don't cry. But my question and challenge is what are we actually doing beyond just going, oh my God, it's really terrible. What are we doing to make it not be so terrible? What are we doing to fight back? Because we have to fight back. Well, for everyone listening who's thinking, what can I do better? What would you suggest? Well, take me for example. He, there was a nine-year-old girl being mutilated so the patriarchy can feel safe and secure. What did I do? I grew up to be the 13-year-old, looked at her mom, mom in the face and said to her, after generations of this bullshit, after generations of this internalized misogyny, and after generations of believing that somehow I am less than and I am in need of correcting so that one day a man will find me marriageable, so that one day a man will find me uh, pure and clean. I've had enough. It's, FGM will not happen anymore in my family. What did she say when that conversation happened? Because I could imagine coming from Africa then to Australia, did it kind of smack her in the face, the reality of how most he live. That was not the response my mom expected from her 13-year-old girl. And culturally, I, I meant to say yes, ma'am, to everything and know my place. But in there were two generations of women, both victims. Now one, the perpetrator of said act and the other, the victim. I didn't give her choice. I didn't look at her like, I, I'm not really sure what I'm saying. It was, you wanted a tough little girl, you got a tough little girl. I'm taking on this fight. You may not have, but I will be taking it on. And there's just this is not a conversation. This is me telling you how it's going to be. She didn't like it because we then got, went on to have numerous fights <laughs> still in 2019 around my right to fight FGM and her right to not be shamed. And I've gone on to then say to her, it's actually not about you. It's not about me. It's about the fact that every 10 seconds, there's a little girl in the world who is mutilated. I'm sorry. I cannot sit back and try to be comfortable or make you comfortable. I have to be the change I want to see. So to the woman listening, whatever it is that your fight is, whether it's you want to fight for women to have the right to abortion, domestic violence pisses you off, which is true, all of us. Whatever your fight is, and given the amount of inequality women suffer every day, I don't want you to just sit home and go, oh, this is so terrible, I'm going to have a glass of wine and go to bed. I want you to have the glass of wine, get up the next morning and make a plan of how you're going to fight back in your family, at work, in your church, in your temple, in your mocks, in your sports club, down the road, when that guy whistles at you, you give him the bird and say, fuck off, buddy. Yeah, we have to fight back. And the reality is we do have the power to fight back. We may need to mobilize, though. And I think this is where the intersectionality comes in. It's going to take all women to fight this. It can't just be... We're not going back to first-wave feminism of white, middle-class white women fighting for the issues that affect them. We're talking about our queer sisters. We're talking about women with disability. We're talking about our First Nation women who, given the, the situation in Australia, we all need to mobilize and take a stand and be allies to each other. Because I'm sorry, without that, we will lose the war. But don't you think there's also this whole conversation around 
we are so oppressed and we are having all these horrible things happen to us that it is equally the man's responsibility to actually turn around and help us. Because at the end of the day, like women can only fight women so much and to a certain point that it has to be adopted by society, correct? It does. And look, we do need male allies, given that men are the ones who have the privilege in this conversation around gender equality. Then that's your husband. That's your brother. That's your son. That's your friend. That's your cousin. We need men in this. But the reason why I was so going hard around women mobilizing is that unless we're on the same page, how the hell then do we get men on the same page with us? Unfortunately, when we scrubble, it just means that men get to take the easy way out and sit back and go, well, let us know when you agree on what you A bunch want. of angry women. Yes, a bunch of angry women. But I do think, and to the men listening to this, you have a responsibility not because you're a father to somebody, not because you are a son, not because you're a husband, because we don't need you to care about gender equality because there's a woman in your life. I want you to care about gender equality because it's the right thing, but also it benefits you. I remember my dad always said to me, any man who doesn't respect women never respected his mother. And it just, yeah, it always just made me be like, oh yeah, that's so true, that's so right. Like it just kind of makes you, at the end of the day, the, the irony is, Women are the only ones who are bringing children into this world. Yet we are so we have so much backlash about being women and all of the things which may benefit us. And I was sharing with you earlier, statistically, it is proven when a woman is economically empowered, yeah. when a woman is educated, the whole of society thrives. Benefits. But yet we're not wanting to do that in, in large droves. It, it is quite sad that civilization and the world we know it comes from from the womb of women or people who identify as women or can biologically carry children but yet still we then go on to punish said people and it's sad because I think in a lot of ways and I say this to my friends as somebody who has a son that I don't want him to respect me because I'm his mom I want that little boy with his male privilege to respect me because I'm a human being. Because I think there's a risk in that we constantly think men need to care about gender equality as it relates to the women in their lives. That's dangerous. Because do you know why a man rapes the girl down the road? She's not his mother. She's not his sister. I want him to care enough to put his penis in his pants and keep it there because she's a human deserving to walk home safely. Just like she's allowing him to walk home safely. We don't, I, I, I find this scary because it, this need to constantly relate us to them and their relationship to us, it then just means they get a pass for not respecting somebody who's not biologically somehow related to them. No, that's not actually it. I'm a human. I'm deserving of respect, safety, and equality because I'm a human. And it's the same as my son. But I do need to say on the flip side, though, when we raise sons, we can raise them to have respect for women. We can raise them to see women as equals. We can raise them to see women as people who they can walk beside. We can definitely do that. But I don't want any boy or son to feel like it's because, well, it's because I love my mom, so I'm going to love other women. No, no, no. Just love other women or support other women because they're humans. Full stop. I'm glad that you love your mommy. That's good. always good. She did carry for nine months. Yeah, exactly. Bare minimum, really, if you think. <laughs> um, I, I did, I did continuously see within my research also that when it comes to one of the biggest perpetrators and governing bodies and controlling of women are religious institutions. But the funny thing is, well, it's not funny at all, actually, but like we were saying earlier, the example of mi- Muslim women wearing hijabs or burqas, Orthodox Jews having to dress below the, the, el- like the elbow or knee with yeah. their clothing, they have to shave their head, wear wigs, and it, it keeps circling back to why. Why is it still the women who need to be desexualized, yet not men's minds? Like, why is this occurring consistently, consistently, no matter where we're looking? And yet I feel within most of their doctrines, doctrines, would that be correct? Word? Yeah, it's doctrines. Yeah, doctrines, yeah, yeah they're, you know. It would say respect and all the rest of it, but but it's like written thousands of years ago. Treat women like shit. Oh, it goes back to the beginning of time. As somebody was born a Muslim, then converted to Christianity years ago, you know, I read the Quran and I would say to people, it actually gives women a lot of rights. It actually gives mm-hmm. them lots of rights. But guess who were the first readers of the Quran? Men. Men. So what they went on to give their interpretation of the Quran and the one that benefited the most. It's the same as the Bible. When I read the Bible, I see Jesus as a guy who actually was poor woman and a feminist who was very, uh, uh, about, he was all about how do we lift women up, elevate them, give them choices. And in a way, they did, you know, but yes, still, when you see, go to churches, you see women reduced to subdued positions and, and told they're only good for childbearing and, you know, to be submissive wives and to know their place. 
And I go, well, that's so far, such a far cry from what I feel I'm reading and I'm understanding of this text. But it almost seems like we're at an advantage from the get-go of who picked up that book first, got to it first, standardized what the message was, and now we're trying to backflip and go, no, I read it, that's not what it is. I spend a lot of time talking to religious people. I go, sorry, you can't tell me your version of it. I read it. I can read, and this is what I read. And I will never forget years ago when I was going through a divorce and on the basis of domestic violence. And I constantly had people, especially men, go, you can't, dom uh, domestic violence is not a written uh, rule in the Bible that allows you divorce. It's either if it's cheat, if it's cheated, yeah, adultery, fine. But even then, we want you to pray and fast, and then, you know, you guys will deal with it. Maybe cook more, maybe have more sex with him, be more submissive, just be a whole. Don't give him, him what happy. he needs. Of course, give him what he needs. Serve him, servitude, know your place. I was like, you do know I can read, right? Okay, let's go back to said Bible, shall we? Let's go. So in any of these pages, do you see where it says it's okay to abuse somebody? Do you see that you can reconcile Jesus with somebody who stands for any form of abuse? Oh, well, I, I can't find it, but he just said adultery. Just because he named adultery doesn't mean it's the only thing possibly. If you read it properly, the context, it says above else love. How would you describe love? Where there's love, there can be no abuse. So all of a sudden, I'm sitting there, and these people are trying to tell me their male chauvinist version of the Bible that benefited them, where women stay in abusive relationship and go on to hopefully pray the, the abuse away. And in fact, last year, there was a research that came out looking at you know, domestic violence in the church, and the amount of women who were told to pray the abuse away, to just pray, and the amount of women who died praying because somehow it was their responsibility. The amount of men who were never called out. Well, isn't that also a large part of it? Like it's not just domestic. Mm. Uh, sorry, it's not just uh, physical. It's also yes. emotional abuse and the idea of tearing away your self-worth and the sheer idea that it's your fault and you're to blame. And yet I would love this flip scenario of that when you come home and you say he's been having an affair and then they say, hey, let's make sure he cleans and cooks more. Let's make sure you actually go out and be super promiscuous and have a great time and yes. embrace all of your sexual pleasure. Yet that stigma is also thrown on women where if we enjoy ourselves too yes. much sexually, all of a sudden we're sluts, hoes. Of course, yeah. Every word can be thrown under the bush and a man is celebrated. A man's desire is the necessity. Whereas there is continuous studies actually coming out now that it is women who actually need more sexual exploration than men and they're actually more prone to um, one woman, etc. Yeah. You know, let's not go down that drought. But isn't that the irony? Like a man yes. will say, hey – you go do this and then you think, well, what about, where, where's my fucking rights in this situation? It is the double standard. And it, it, you see that double standard in everywhere you go. Like, you know, you have, you know, a man is, sows his oats when he has sex. They go, oh, he's sowing his oats. But then when he wants to get married, he goes, I want a virgin. Uh, but hold on, buddy. Won't you enjoy yourself? Yeah, but I don't want any of the girls. But, I just enjoyed myself. But why with. do we have to be virginal? Exactly. Where this virginal, pure, clean woman, um, ideology it goes deep it goes all the way back and even to this day you see when women will go into a relationship and the questions ask how many partners how quickly people start lying my friend i, I was lying telling about the numbers i was telling a friend today about how i was having this conversation i go when i say to you governing of your body what do you think she goes well certainly something that comes up for me is if someone asks me about my sexual partners i always reduce the number yeah men don't yeah well men they, men sometimes add a few extra they add don't a they? double it to say i'm a start see but a woman will feel the need, and society does pressure, to reduce it because, like, well, how many? And every woman knows when that question is asked to her, it's a setup. Mm. You really, you can't actually win the conversation unless you go one or zero, and even the one will be questioned in what context did this one happen. Meanwhile, he's like, I have been a hoe out here. I have been a hoe, dipping it, dripping it in everywhere I could, and yeah, I, I, I'm proud of it, baby. And you're like, no, no ain't nobody want your SDIs. Go get check up. And it's just, it's, it's the double standard. And actually, it pisses me off. As a single woman who is out there trying to date right now, God, this struggle is real. Um, I'm just like, no. Nobody. I want to know who your ex was. Why did she leave your sorry ass? Can I have a referee? Can I call her up well, and have a chat with her by you? Don't. Isn't there that meme going around where it says if she if he says um she was crazy, you're like run. He was crazy. Yeah. Oh no, no that's it. 
Every time a man says, oh, my ex was crazy, I have an alarm bell that goes, oh, that poor woman, what she yeah. must have gone through, what you must have done to make her crazy. Because that is, isn't it? Even if she was crazy, what did you do to drive her crazy? Because yeah. we throw the word crazy around. But when you're a woman in the modern day where you're constantly police and you know, you're too loud, you're too strong, you're too independent, we're always too something. Well, you're literally set up to be crazy. So, okay, you know, I own it. I'm a crazy woman. For, for those who are listening who are single, I am a crazy woman. And I'm proud to be a crazy woman. And you know what? I'm not waiting for somebody to drive me crazy. I'm just crazy because I'm a woman who lives in a world that discriminates against me, that is constantly trying to control me. And you know what? I am feeling the rage and the crazy. I am. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to kind of head towards the end and finish up with what are the harms that you see if we look forward and how this is going to continue to impact the younger generation, teenagers, if we don't, and all those in society, if we're continually creating this divide between boys and girls and how they can and cannot dress and just that simple uh, responsibility. I mean, you have a young, you have, a, have son, a son, but just in general, I think we're all talking about the now, whereas let's future pace 10 years. And what does that look like? I have to say, I'm sorry. I am not really that optimistic about the future. But what sometimes gives me hope is the responsibility we have for those of us who have children. But regardless of even if it's not your biological child, but the kid children we have around us, whether it's niece, cousins, nephews, aunties, you know, we all have those roles. But just even as mentors or mentees, when I look at my four-year-old son, I see my greatest responsibility in, in raising a kick-ass feminist man. I see that as my first duty in that I have the power and I have the privilege of being able to mold him at a young age, because it starts young. This stuff we're talking about, the ban on abortion, the, the domestic violence, it starts really young. It starts from the moment you're pregnant and you have that little seed inside you and people go, is it a boy or a girl? They already have started. Mm. By the time the baby comes, it's the pink and the blue. And then the toys. It really starts early. So then to me, I think, well, let's start early in how we question from the get-go. When my son was born, I banned the color blue. And people would go, oh my God, that's so dramatic. And it, No, it's not. People are lazy. You say, I have a boy, they go and buy you blues everywhere. I am sorry. Nobody needs that much blue, but my son will not be defined by a color. So guess what I did? Bought a lot of pink. So we walked around everywhere in this pink tutu and pink jumper and people were like, oh my God, you're a beautiful baby girl. No, he's a boy. Oh. Yeah, what's the problem? It's a color. It's a color. It's a beautiful color. Let the child wear the color. Then I said to them, I don't want trucks. Can you all stop buying trucks? He doesn't need that many trucks. So we'll go to this uh, shopping center. We'll go through both aisles of the toys. And I, I didn't tell him there's a boy and girl aisle. I would just take him two naturally all. And he chose his toys. So he has a baby doll that he calls his baby. That he gives a jacket because it gets cold. Puts a nappy on because apparently he has a pee. And he says, mommy, my baby's sick. And he notches. Then he has a truck that he plays with equally he loves. But he got a choice. I did not define him based on what's between his leg. Yeah, I kind of love that because <laughs> I've heard so often when people have kids and that if, if their son was doing things like that, they'd be like, oh, he's going to be gay. See, I'm the opposite. I'm just like, you are going to be a nurturing man. We need more nurturing men in the world. We need compassionate men. We need caring men. It's not about being gay. No, people are not gay because of the toy. They play with people. Yeah, they're not, guys. I'm just telling you, it's got nothing to do with the toys. That is not it. But that itself tells us how we see masculinity, that we have now assigned it to, it's it's gay if you do this, and then, then you're a man over here if you're rough and you're tumbling. But as parents, we are in the best, I think, and, and anybody who has access to children, in the best position from that young age to start questioning these gender norms and rules that do go on to become very toxic. So having a son who has a baby doll, what I sit and observe is a nurturing child. A nurturing child who has then gone to childcare, and by virtue of sometimes choosing his doll over his truck, other boys are given the permission to go, Actually, maybe I didn't want to talk. I wanted the doll. It was cuter. And that's perfectly fine. But mm. little girls go, I don't want the doll. I want to talk. That's fine, baby girl. You do you, boo-boo. Yeah. And I think there's so much power in that. And then when they go on to be in the playground and, you know, your daughter comes home and goes, oh, that boy pushed me. You don't say he likes you. You go, <laughs> hell to the nah. He doesn't get to touch you. Isn't that the, yeah, that actually throws me back to being People really young? And it's like if he's treating you really horrible, he really he has a crush on yes. you. And it's like treat him mean, keep him keen. Horrible. That is really sad. But it reminds me of this one time. I think my son maybe may have been two. We were at the airport, 
and he saw this little girl and he rushed and hugged her. And I pulled him back. I said, sorry to her. I said, sorry. I said, I'm sorry for hugging you without your consent. People are watching me like I'm a nutcase. No, I'm not. You start early. We went back and sa I sat down him and said, Sammy, we don't go touching people without their consent. You know, when I say I want to hug Sammy, you go, no. Go, yeah. And I, you say, no. And I leave you alone. He goes, yeah, I'm respecting you. When you also say you want a hug from mommy, I go, I usually say yes, of course. Well, who says no to their child for a hug? I give you a hug. But remember when you were breastfeeding and once you stop breastfeeding, I said, my boobs belong to me, no more access for you? Yeah, they belong to me, my property. I just want you to understand, we don't go hugging, touching people, we ask. So now I have a four-year-old who says, can I hug you to little girls? before he hugs them. When they say no, he goes, oh, well, and moves along just fine. Right, he's not rejected. He's not going to no, build problems up within his psychology. equality. If he wants the same respect, he has to give it. The same way he wants me and everyone else to respect his right to not be hugged, to not have to high-five a stranger. People come to my room like, he doesn't need to high-five you. He doesn't need to hug you. Sam, you want to hug that? Okay, goodbye. That's the end of that conversation because mm. he's right. But we don't even think about that. The amount of friends who say to me, are you sure you're not just making overreacting like, Am I though? Because where does it start? He's four now. He'll be five. These are slow conversations that are age appropriate, but slowly he's getting the understanding and the concept. And I'm hoping by God he'll be a 15 year old boy who is at the party who goes, Can I hold your hand? And she goes, Sure. He holds her hand. I, oh, no, don't hold my hand. Okay, that's fine. No worries. We can still stand here. That he understands he's not entitled to nothing. Well, I think what I'm really liking from at least what I'm hearing in your story is that it's not just about if he can or cannot uh, hold or touch. It's that he doesn't build into his psychology all of these problems around yes. rejection and that he's yeah. not enough and all of these other things. He kind of, from what you're saying, he, he just kind of... He doesn't feel entitled to it. Yeah, he doesn't feel entitled, so therefore he's not rejected, so therefore all of these other problems aren't building layers in. Well, you know, it, it started with the boobs. And everyone I have to say around me thought it was stranger that was standing there saying to my son, you have stopped breastfeeding. My breasts are no longer, you no longer have access to them. People go, what is so, you weird. Because most people stop breastfeeding but still hug their children to their breasts and still give them access to it, have them sucking it, even if there's no milk. I went, but no, this is a great teaching woman though. He doesn't need it for nourishment anymore. But what I really was trying to show him is boundaries. Yeah. That I am his mom. But my body actually doesn't belong to him. But we teach kids from a young age. And you see it even at parties. Sons grabbing asses. People just laugh. And I'm going, we're laughing now. But what a great teaching moment to put those boundaries in place now about no. Not appropriate. I'm your mom. I love you. But my boobs are not yours. Step off, boys. Yeah. Well, you cannot, you cannot fix what you ignore. You cannot. And I think for too often, we think we have to have these hard conversations later when they're teenagers, when they're a bit older. Not recognizing, and you know, at an early age, we can start instilling these messages with kids. And, you know, for the parents out there, if this is something you want to do, the Our Watch website has a page called Because Why that really deconstructs gender inequality and helps you as a parent from birth how you could start having equality in your home from the way you react to your partners to you know the way you treat your children and toys and dolls and childcare. all these little things we could be doing to create the future we want we, we can change this but it has to start really early and you have to put some effort into it and yes you'll be the weirdo telling your baby boy to get his hands off your boobs they don't belong to him but he got the message but i completely agree like i don't want to limit our future by our past no no i think there's hope there is definitely hope and i i think let's just do whatever part we can play and every bit will will, will count before i ask you my final question where can everyone find you they can find me on Instagram under my name, Khadija Blah. Um, I'll link that up. Yes, yes, please. And they can also find me on Facebook under the uh, Intersectional FGM campaign if they want to follow FGM news and stories and, um, and follow my work in that space. Because unfortunately for people, I have to tell you, 200,000 women and girls have been cut in Australia. 11 girls are at risk every day of being cut. So my work is just beginning and I welcome any form of support in really being part of that solution to ensure that our girls grow up to be badasses who not only break the ceiling, I want them to freaking get through the ceiling and get to the other side and kick ass there as well. Your work is amazing and I have love following along and also just educating myself. You know, it's just opening your eyes up to things that you had no idea about. I find being willing to say I had no fucking clue and then saying, what can I do? Yeah. And, and I think it, that's, it's perfectly okay to not know enough and just be open to knowing more. 
Okay, so you're standing in front of a room. You're standing in front of a room of 10,000 women and you're able to offer one piece of advice. What would you say? Oh, Lord have mercy. What a question. What would I say? Never compromise. Everything is tied to values. We compromise so much of who we are. We dull our shine. We reduce ourselves. We try to fit molds. Don't compromise. I didn't compromise with my mom. I didn't compromise with my ex. I didn't even compromise with the little boy I live with in my house. <laughs> Don't compromise. Because it starts there. The moment you start compromising, where does it end? Don't compromise. Couldn't have thought of a better way to end that. Thank you so much, Khadija. <laughs> Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible and all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.